is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on texts used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Today's passage is Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. It's the reading for Transfiguration Sunday in the Year C cycle of the lectionary, which happens to be one of the scripture readings for February 27, 2022. There are three different versions of this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Luke's version of the Transfiguration stands alone for a number of different reasons. While it's included in Matthew and Mark, Luke's version is filled with a different kind of gravity. It centers on the journey that Jesus is now going to undertake as he leaves this mountain and begins his trek to Jerusalem. Now, this story bears parallels with the story of Moses' encounter with God in Exodus 24. And so if you're looking at this text in preparation uh, for a Sunday where it's going to be preached, you might want to read Exodus 24 because Luke really tries to set this story with it uh, so that Moses and Jesus have a lot of parallels with them. You know, like Moses, Jesus takes three companions up to this mountain. And, and the parallels here don't just stop with uh, the simple things like how many people each took with them. Uh, these stories are both about liberation. Uh, for example, Moses received the tablets of, of the Jewish law on Sinai when he went up the mountain. And in this case, there's a sense in which Jesus himself is the tablet as he is transfigured, that Jesus is a new law, if you will, for us. Jesus's appearance, it says in Luke, is changed. And the word here is not the same word that's used in Mark or even Matthew. Those two gospels talk about how Jesus uh, was uh, uh, transfigured, literally. The Greek word they use is, is metamorphothe. And it has, we get our word metamorphosis from that word. But Luke doesn't use this word. He uses a different word. He talks about how Jesus' appearance has changed and he becomes radiant, like bright light. And again, this is another comparison to the, the story about Moses when he went up on the mountain. You might remember in the, the Exodus story that when Moses comes off the mountain, his face is radiant. Luke is drawing this kind of connection because these two events have a lot of similarities. Now, there are two individuals who appear with Jesus in this story. One is Moses and the other is Elijah. And they have many similarities in the Bible. Both of those men, Moses and Elijah, met God on a mountain, uh, namely Sinai or Horeb. They both had strange departures from this world. In other words, like Elijah was uh, assumed into heaven on a chariot. And uh, some would say that they represent the law and the prophets, that Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Uh, that interpretation is a little pressed, but it, it is there because these two figures really kind of represented the apex of a Jewish religious leadership in Moses and Elijah. And it's all about this amazing setting and the milieu of the story itself. Now, the essence of the story in Luke chapter 9 is about the conversation they're having. And the conversation they're having is about Jesus's journey to Jerusalem, which will result in his death. You see, this is a story about salvation and liberation. This is about what Moses and Elijah actually point to some have suggested that, that this story of the transfiguration 
is a misplaced story that actually occurred after the resurrection. And, and I don't know if I would hold that perspective. I think it's hard to keep that ground. And the reason is, is that the suffering and transformational journeys of Moses and Elijah are real. And it's that journey of suffering and transformation that Jesus is about to go through. And so this story really makes sense where it's located uh, because it really functions as the introduction of where Jesus really sets his face to go to Jerusalem and the events that will happen there. And that really opens up the key passageway for us in this text. And it's this, that the act of love requires a summoning of courage and faith. Jesus's work is not one of mere loving kindness in his stories and in his miracles. Jesus is, is far beyond any kind of moral and ethical teacher. This story is one that will intersect us with a cross. And its inevitability makes it sound like destiny, but it's really not. Jesus knows what his life and his ministry, his preaching and his teaching will do and what it will cause. And so this moment is about courage and faith. It's about Jesus's commitment of love. Will it take him to the cross? And indeed it will. And that decision to go to Jerusalem and to a cross that is waiting for him is considered. It is real. It is weighted. It is not fate. So as we consider the acts of love that God presents us with, we must weigh the same things. Is it worth it? Can I do this? Can I follow this path? Love is embodied best in action, and it requires us to think about it and reflect on it and to pray about it. How do we do the math about living a life of sacrificial service and love in Jesus' name? Is that a passing moment? Or are there moments where it needs to be calculated, deliberate, an action we take for the sake of others. One of the characters present on this Mount of Transfiguration uh, is Peter, Jesus' disciple. There are three of them there, Peter, James, and John. And as this entire conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah has ensued, uh, they've been fast asleep. So the Text in Luke makes it clear that they didn't see the encounter or the conversation, but that they awaken only at the end of it. And Peter's story in this text is really the story of us all. Well-intended, but ill-informed. You see, Moses and Elijah are preparing to depart, the text tells us. And it's at this moment, Peter realizes something needs to happen. Now, how Peter knew who Moses and Elijah were beyond me uh, not like there's a photograph of these two individuals, but nonetheless, the text tells us he knows who's there. And so what Peter wants to do is freeze this moment in time. He, he quickly says, let's build some tents or tabernacles for the three of you. Now, how he would build this up on a mountain, I don't know, but his intentionality is there. He's well-intended. Peter awakes from his slumber, believing this moment is the end, and he wants to freeze it exactly the way it is. You see, this new Exodus story in Peter's mind is a story where Jesus can be frozen in concept, not in action. So what this means is he wants to build a tent for them. 
And now Jesus is actually preparing to build a tent for all of us by his actions that will take him to the cross. So in a sense, Peter is not in active denial of the cross. He may not even see it as an eventual outcome at this point. But what he does represent is the good enough mentality. If we could just freeze this moment in time, if we could just hold on to this moment and the glory of this moment, people would come from far and wide to see it and they would recognize who Jesus is and his position would be well established. And in doing this, he becomes an unwitting obstacle to the full revealing of God's love and salvation that will come in Jesus Christ. He forgets his position, his information, his role, his function. It seems like he completely forgets what's going on at this moment and his place in it. Hence, the text tells us quite clearly that Peter, it said, was not realizing what he was saying. And that opens up a key passageway for us here, that we must remember what we do not know. It may seem like a riddle, but it's not. We must remember what we do not know. Uh, an idiom used in my culture is this, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Now, Peter's move here is to uh, create what an old TV commercial used to be called a Kodak moment. It's the moment that you want to capture in a photograph. And he wants to have a Kodak moment up on this magic mountain. And it's an attraction that people will come and see. It will validate who Jesus is in Peter's mind. Maybe he's even going to charge tickets for admission. In my own impatience at times as a person, uh, my intention of allowing God's grace and love in action have often ran afoul. My life often is governed by the same impulse Peter has. And in order to steer out of the skid that we get ourselves into sometimes where our intentionality gets ahead of our insight, we must learn to live in moments of uncertainty there is mystery and wonder in this story and in our life with God. And so our quest spiritually, emotionally, even physically, is not for knowledge or certainty. The quest is to trust in faith that God can and will work, especially when we do not know the outcome. Well, no sooner does Peter make this pronouncement of wanting to build these tabernacles, the story takes a strange shift in the last several verses of Luke chapter 9. What Peter is articulating is ultimately a barrier to the work that Jesus needs to accomplish. His good enough recommendation of building these tabernacles or tents up on the mountain cuts short the saving grace of God. He just doesn't know it. And the text tells us in verse 34 that while he was saying this, the grammar here is key, Peter was still talking about this when a cloud overcame them. Now, the cloud from a biblical perspective is a rich image. Um, the way the Bible talks about a cloud is that it's God's mode of transportation. I mean, think of it in the way that uh, ancient peoples would think of this, that, that God is in some realm in the sky, and as such, uh, we see things floating around in the sky like clouds. So 
Perhaps God rides on one of them or is transported by them. Um, we read this again and again in the scripture that, you know, like Elijah is assumed into heaven, assumed into heaven on a cloud. There was a cloud on Sinai that covered the mountain while Moses was receiving the law. There are dozens of examples. So when this cloud comes in, Luke is really pulling a deep image out of the scripture and that powerful words are about to be spoken. And indeed they are. This voice is heard by Peter and everyone there. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. It reflects the same language that used as Jesus was emerging from the waters of baptism. This is my son, my chosen one. This event, recorded in two other gospels, Matthew and Mark, now begins to gain clarity. This moment is the inauguration of the second act of Jesus's ministry. It's his journey to the cross. And God's message is clear to Peter. You have not listened to him yet. You may have heard him, but you haven't listened. Jesus's preaching and teaching point to the confrontation with religious and civil powers and authorities that oppress people. Peter cannot envision a cross as anything other than a failure for Jesus. That's probably why he doesn't even have it in mind. And as quickly as the moment began, it ends. Jesus was found alone, the text tells us. They keep silent, Luke says in the closing verse of this story. It's that likely uh, awkward silence when all of a sudden we see ourselves in perspective. Peter, James, and John found themselves to a place of confusion, wonder, and being speechless. And this is the last key passageway I have for us in this text. That God's work in us and the world is purposeful. You know, part of Peter's error is to see the event that's happening in relationship to himself. He cannot yet see God's purposefulness in what is happening. As we move through our days with our own friends, partners, coworkers, spouses, even strangers, consider for a moment that God is at work in every single one of them and in us purposefully. That reality becomes a, a mystery filled with uncertainty for us. You know, Jesus is going to a cross in this story. This is not a story about some lovely mountaintop day, the way we often talk about this text, that this is the mountaintop experience before Jesus descends into the valley. There's nothing about this episode that has to do with those glorious moments of experiencing the, the full reality of God's love and grace, like when we take a walk in the woods or we experience nature. This is not a mountaintop experience. It is a conversation about death. And what would happen if we moved through each day, each moment, with that kind of gravity about every human being we encounter, looking for God's purposefulness in others and in the world, instead of simply looking to see how things impact us. This is the perspective of grace, of love, of being in God. And if we were to embrace this way of looking at the world, 
like the disciples, it might just leave us a little more speechless. That's it for this week. I bid all of you grace. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.